I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Mark Hyman, James Gordon, and Penny George, which we recorded in front of a live audience at the University of Minnesota. Download the MP3 of our produced show with them at onbeing.org. I am so happy to be up here with Penny and two other uh, visionaries and leaders in the ongoing work of transforming medicine, which, um, you know, Bill just put some great words around that. You know, I, I think about it in terms of aligning and putting medicine in the service of the robust understanding of human wholeness that we're able to grasp in the 21st century. Um, so I am going to, all of these people have, I could read pages of their credentials, and I, this, these, are, um, these are shortened versions. Uh, Penny Pilgrim George is the board chair of the Penny George Institute Foundation, which supports the work of the Penny George Institute for Health and Healing at Alina Health in Minneapolis, as Bill, which, as Bill said, is the largest hospital-based integrative medicine program in the U.S., a trained psychologist, she previously specialized in helping senior executives select for and build high-performing teams. And as a co-founder of the Bravewell Collaborative, she, which was a national collaboration of philanthropists dedicated to advancing integrative medicine, she became an early leader, an early pioneer in the national movement to transform healthcare through the principles and practices of integrative medicine. Uh, James Gordon... And I'm going to call you Jim. Is that all right? Jim is great. Okay. Uh, is the founder and executive director of the Center for Mind-Body Medicine and a clinical professor in the Departments of Psychiatry and Family Medicine at Georgetown Medical School. Um, he was a chairman of the White House Commission on Complementary and Alternative Medicine Policy under Presidents Clinton and George W. Bush. And he is a world-renowned expert in using mind-body medicine to heal depression, anxiety, and psychological trauma. And he's done this work in far-flung places and extreme situations with families and children from Kosovo to Gaza to post-Katrina, southern Louisiana. Uh, and finally, Mark Hyman is the director of the Cleveland Clinic Center for Functional Medicine. He is also the founder and medical director of the Ultra Wellness Center. He's a practicing family physician, a best-selling author. Um, he's consulted with the Surgeon General on diabetes prevention. He's worked with the Clinton Global Initiative, as well as the World Economic Forum on global health issues. And he has practiced medicine also in various settings, from an inner-city emergency room to a, an international medical center in Beijing. And so, you know, I, as I say, I've known Penny for a long time. I've been following both of these physicians for a long time as well. And it's just wonderful to have all three of them here together. Um, and um, I actually, great minds think alike, Bill. I want to start with turning points. Um, <laughs> um, we, are, we are at a turning point as a society. Um, and what's interesting to me is that all, th all three of these uh, people from very different corners um, was ahead of that curve um, in, 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 in all of your, as I've kind of steeped in, what you've written and what's been written about you in other interviews you've given, um, you all talk about turning points personally that kind of moved you in a different direction and, and, and turned you into catalysts, um, again, ahead of this curve that, that we're all on now, in, if in very different places and at different paces. Um, and I wanted to begin with you, Mark. Um, you initially wanted to be a writer. and you did do your homework, didn't I you? I did my homework, <laughs> yeah. Um, 
And you've written that a course on Zen Buddhism changed the course of your life and actually led you into medicine with a different view of medicine and healing than what you'd had before. Could you talk about that? What, what was it that you saw that shifted you? Oh, gosh, that's a big question. Um, well, you know, the truth is that uh, I was not a pre-med student, that I studied Buddhism and just followed this great professor and took class after class in Asian studies and Buddhism. And it really shaped my thinking about the world and about what creates suffering, how we suffer, how we create healing in the world. And really, really was a healing system. And I began to sort of be interested in other healing systems. Uh, and, uh, and then I, you know, studied Chinese. I was going to go to China and actually become a Chinese doctor, but I, I kind of got scared off. I didn't want to spend my twenties in a fascist dictatorship. So <laughs> I, I basically chickened out and I'll try medical school. So I went and it really informed my understanding about, you know, sort of big level thinking of the interconnections between things that, you know, the systemic nature of things. And mm-hmm. it, it kind of was sort of perplexing to me when I went to medical school, cause it was sort of the medicine of what? What was the disease? What was the drug? It wasn't why. And I was always interested in the question of why. And, uh, and so that's really informed my, mm. my thinking. And, you know, um, the, other, the other piece is that, uh, you know, I was really moved by the sort of the, the ideal of the, the, the bodhisattva and the, the Buddhist monks as doctors and thought that would be a good idea for a job. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, you, to, you, you talked about how you, you saw medicine as a noble path. And I think that's wonderful yeah. language. Yeah. Um, so, Penny, um, you grew up with a surgeon father, right? Um, so you were surrounded by medicine in, in addition to just having medicine as part of your life, as we all do. But it was really, it sounds like you really began to think in a whole new way about health and medical care when you were confronted with a crisis of disease in your body. It's true. I was, I was on my way to doing something very different um, and had never intended to end up where I am now. Um, but about 20 years ago, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And um, I did the, the Western medicine. I mean, as a surgeon's daughter, that was the obvious thing to do. But, and I had excellent care. I mean, it wasn't that I have any complaints about. But, but the standard of care really looked at me as a body part and a disease. And it was clear to me even then that I was so much more than that. And I was also, you know, wanting to have the, the, the sort of psycho-spiritual dimension addressed. I wanted somebody to listen to my story. I wanted to know what I could do. And, and it was sort of, don't worry your little head about this. You know, I wasn't guaranteed a cure, but there was also no attempt to engage me in my own care. And so I set out to sort of see what I could figure out with the thinking that either um, I would do what I could to prevent a recurrence or else um, if I were going to die from it, because there was no guarantee, um, that I could at least die healed. I think I, both my grandfathers are ministers, and I think I had a, a sense of the spiritual part of that as well. So I went out and just um, found all kinds of healing options that were out there, and there was actually, that was 20 years ago, but there was still a fair amount of research on some things that could add to the quality of life, and there was no guarantee about preventing a recurrence, but I thought, we well, certainly can't hurt. Yeah. Um, and so what I found was it was the experience of taking charge of my own return to well to, to well being more than just health to well being and I ended up at a place that was so much better than where I had been before I started that I thought everybody should have access to this and I was pretty sure it would save money too but I obviously didn't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you wrote you wrote something really beautiful. You said. You know, you've always said that you had good conventional care, but it didn't 
at the same time, it, there, it wasn't addressing so much of what mattered to you. As you said, not only how could you re- prevent a recurrence, but you said helping me live fully with what could possibly be a chronic, chronic illness or dying whole, depending on what would be the outcome. Those these large questions that weren't addressed anywhere. Yeah. And, it, and I, I think we're making progress toward that now. Yeah. So thanks to the, to the wonderful staff here and the staff who aren't here. I yeah, that was salute nine... them because without them, and this isn't about me, uh, I'm just privileged to support some pretty phenomenal people. And this is in 1996 that you received your diagnosis. Correct. So I can't count very well, but we're, you know, we're less than 20 years later. It's, it's pretty remarkable. Yeah how much has happened. Um, so Jim, and in 1991, you created the Center for Mind-Body Medicine. And, um, you know, that's striking to me because we now know, um, again, with technologies and insights that have really developed over the last decade or two, that, um, you know, mind and body are more entangled and more interactive in every direction than we could possibly have guessed. But, so what, but, but we didn't know all of this um, in 1991. So, so what happened to, um, to open you up to this possibility? Well, I, th- I think what happened is uh, the opening came a long time before that, when I, when I first went to medical school, actually. And what happened is that I, I came in on the first day of medical school and said registration was 9 to 12, and I'd <laughs> gone to Harvard College, <clears throat> where registration 9 to 12 meant you came and you filled out a few pieces of paper. I went to Harvard Medical School. I thought it was the same thing. So I showed up in an auditorium about three times as big as this one, and I was wearing a T-shirt and jeans and uh, sandals, and everybody was in a three-piece suit. <laughs> and uh, the professor was, and all the students was almost all men. Mm-hmm. And I thought... And I came in at 10.30 or 11 o'clock. I thought, hmm, I wonder if I'm in the right place. <laughs> and what happened to me in, in medical school is that for the first time in my life, I felt alienated. I didn't always enjoyed school. And that alienation was deeply instructive to me. It was the early days of civil rights movement, and I became involved in the civil rights movement. And I began to see certain parallels, uh, between what black people were struggling for in the South, what patients were struggling to be recognized as human beings in hospital, in the hospital and in the clinics. And, and for me, there was a sense of, okay, who I'm being treated like a Strasbourg goose. I mean, they're just feeding us all these facts and you know, to get us to regurgitate them. And it didn't feel right. So somehow, it was an, I got opened up and I got opened up to experience more directly the suffering of other people. And once that happened, everything else began to flow because I, the, what was important was not, doctor's point of view could be really important in an emergency, but in the long run, it was the human being with whom I was sitting right. who was important. And I began to really, I always was interested in people's stories, so I liked sitting with people and I liked learning from them. And I saw that that was, that was the heart of this work. Mm. And the mind-body approach came a few years later. I began to work with meditation in the 60s. And meditation for me is a way of opening myself to, to myself first and then to the other person. And eventually, I, 
I somehow was able to get NIMH to support me while I studied all this. Mm -hmm. And one thing led to another, and eventually, uh, because I wanted to have the freedom to develop my ideas, to create a community of healers and a healing community, I created the Center for Mind-Body Medicine. Mm -hmm. But the idea goes back much further Mm -hmm. than that. Uh, I think part of the integrity and depth of all of your work is also that you it's grounded actually for each of you also in an experience of of a health crisis. So Penny had her cancer. You work with depression and and you've walked through depression as well. Yeah. Well, that was in medical school too because that I, was in medical I, school. Yeah, after a couple of years, uh, I thought, well, I, I can do this, but I don't really get what why. And I, I wanted to help other people. I knew that. But I still felt kind of alienated and confused, and I needed to take some time off. And, uh, of course, the, the, the psychiatrist at the medical school thought I was totally crazy for wanting to, how could anybody want to leave Harvard Medical School, even for a moment? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I said what I wanted to do is ship out on a boat and learn some languages and do some writing. Anyway, what, what happened in the course of that year is I really began to see that, that I, was, I was out of balance. I, I got mm-hmm. quite depressed, and uh, I, my girlfriend and I broke up. It sort of all came together. And I, I got in touch with someone whom I, whose work I admired, a man named uh, Robert Coles, oh. who was uh, then working with kids who were integrating the schools in Louisiana. Yeah. I've I, interviewed him. What a great... I'm sorry? I've interviewed him. What a great, yeah. great man. Oh, he's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. And what, what he... So this was a real turning point for me, mm-hmm. I, uh, and I had talked with him about doing research with him during this year off that I had, and he said, well, no, I'm just writing now. I don't need research, but I had a great talk with him, and then when I got really down, I called him on the phone from New York, and he was on the phone with me for two hours. I mean, it was just beautiful, just listening and really being there for me and la- helping me laugh at myself. Mm-hmm. So that's... That was a very that sort of journey into myself with Bob's help was enormously powerful for me, and, and depression became yeah. a turning point in my life. Okay, and Mark, you um, you were head, you were medical director of Canyon Ranch, is that right? And three months into that, so you're already on this path. Or three months into that, you came down with chronic fatigue syndrome, and there's some place you said it was like having. ADD, dementia, and depression all at the same time. <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> Sounds pretty bad. And a lot of other things. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I uh, you know, I was super healthy. I was a yoga teacher before I was a doctor, you know, studied nutrition in college. I was always focused on wellness. And uh, I actually ended up living in China for a year and didn't realize it, but I, I got mercury poisoning there from the pollution. Because someone told me to get an air filter for my hotel because it was so polluted, and I did, but every day I cleaned it out and would breathe in this concentrated soot. And, uh, you know, I literally went from riding my bike 100 miles a day and remembering 30 patients without notes and dictating charts to not being able to walk up the stairs, to not being able to remember I was at the end of the sentence, to having a whole system breakdown where my gut broke down, my immune system broke down, I developed rashes and autoimmune Markers and my liver tests were abnormal. My white cells were off. I mean, everything was just off. And I had severe muscle aches. My muscle enzymes went up. And I went to doctor after doctor. Went to top experts at Columbia, at Harvard. I mean, I just searched and searched and, you know, came up completely blank. And they're like, take Prozac. You're depressed. You're stressed. You're this, you're that. And I'm like, ah, I'm like, I'm not. I mean, I, something's wrong. 
And I, it was then when I realized that I, 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 uh, I sort of reached the limit of what actually we could do with the kind of thinking we have in medicine. And I heard, I was invited to hear a talk by a guy named Jeffrey Bland, who's a nutritional biochemist who worked with Linus Pauling. And he was a big thinker. He was a systems thinker. And he was re, he, he painted a picture of medicine that was completely different than what I learned in medical school, which was not disease-based, but uh, based on systems thinking. And, and I said, I, this guy's crazy or he's a genius. And like, I have to figure it out. So I started to just sort of imbibe everything I could about this and try it on myself and try it on my patients. And I kept seeing miracles in my patients, people getting better from things that I never would have You know, there's, there's a way you talked, the way, a way you've talked about this that in your, through your own experience, you, you wanted to understand the puzzle of yourself yeah. and understand how the body works as a network, which is, yeah. which is so, the, I mean, the systems. Yeah, I mean, basically like break down yeah. how we get sick and how we get better yeah. and, and chronic fatigue, everything goes wrong. So I literally had to understand my body from the inside out and through the lens of functional medicine, which is, is really a, a systems view of health. It's based on dealing with the causes and not the, just the symptoms, dealing with the body as an ecosystem or, you know, looking at the whole organism, not just the organs. And it's, it's as big of a paradigm shift as, you know, the earth is not flat, as this earth is not the center of the universe. It's a huge, and it's basically dismantling our concepts of disease as we speak, and yet it's completely um, absent from most uh, medical institutions and thinking and medical schools. I mean, just the concept of the microbiome, for example, is like now yeah, taking right. hold, but... We don't know what to do with it. How does it make sense that your gut flora could cause depression, anxiety, autism, autoimmune disease, diabetes, obesity, cancer, heart disease? I mean, that doesn't make sense given our way of thinking. So it really came to that through my own experience and then realizing that we had to find a way to end suffering that was needless. Like we can't end all suffering, but we can end needless suffering. And, And that's why I'm so passionate about sharing this model and developing it and getting it out there. So, you know, the, the transformation you're talking about, I mean, Penny, you say when you had your, when you were diagnosed with cancer, you felt like you were treated as a compromised body part. And I mean, do you imagine that, um, one day, and, 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 you know, I, it's one of these forms I think we've inherited in the 21st century where we're suddenly kind of waking up as it's kind of like the way schools work. We realize they don't work, that they, they don't make sense. Um, but you know, so you, we kind of wake up and realize that doctors specialize in body parts Mm-hmm. Which doesn't make any sense. What you're saying? Not I mean, anymore. do you imagine that one day there won't be uh, th- there will be a whole different way for physicians to be trained? Absolutely. I mean, we're, we still need technicians different. to do things because right. we're going to still have similar problems. But we need completely rethink our approach to diagnosis mm-hmm. and treatment, and it's 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 fundamentally radically different. Yeah. I mean, I first heard you speak. We were both at a conference a few years ago. We didn't meet there, but at the Aetna on Nantucket, and you talked about functional medicine. Mm. And it was the first time I'd heard the term. And I, I'd actually had a lot of conversations with people like Penny over the years about integrative medicine. And, you know, I thought the fact that we that you have to create something called functional medicine, yeah, you know, kind of t- it, 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 it reveals what kind of a rut we've been in. Yeah. No, it's true. I mean, we, we, you know, it's just the evolution of medicine, right? Then we went from, you know, you, you go with a head pain to the head doctor. You go with the stomach pain to the stomach doctor. You go with the joint pain to the joint doctor. It sort of makes sense, right? It's very cr- sort of, crude. Yeah. It's very rudimentary. And, and it doesn't, but it doesn't actually reflect science anymore. So, so as we're beginning to shift out of it, we, we have to sort of reorganize our thinking. And, mm-hmm. and it's, it's tough. It's tough. 
Tanya, do you want to say something? I think it goes a lot to some of our deepest assumptions about things. And I think when we discovered the, you know, the antibiotics and the sulfa drugs in the early years of the early decades of the 1900s, it created this idea that there's a pill for every ill. Um, and I think we're still in that mindset, and I think there are some sort of sacred cows in, involved in it as well, is that the presumption is that there is a pill, and we just have to figure out what it is. And if it isn't a pill, it's an herb. Um, but if we don't right. get beyond substituting herbs for pills, we won't have gotten very right. far. Right, right. I mean, that's sort of the, the evolution, right? We go from that to alternative medicine, which is other modalities from other countries that have use and that are integrated systems. And they go, well, that's great. Well, why don't we bring that into conventional medicine? We call that integrative medicine. Right. But right. the challenge is that the conventional paradigm is broken. So you need a different roadmap to know how to apply those tools. Those are tools. Functional medicine, I say, is the map. It's sort of the, it's the GPS, the operating system, and it's agnostic when it comes to the tools. It could be surgery, it could be, you know, meditation, it could be exorcism or exercise. Like I don't know, whatever it is, you know, and you know those patients you need some. This is public like, radio, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, know, I, I gave a talk once at Cleveland Clinic, and you know, I, I said that joke, and someone complained to the CEO that Dr. Hyman is recommending exorcism. At the I'm like, no. <laughs> um, so, 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 so let's name. I think. Um, you know, the completely different center of this new vision, which you all work on and write about, which is, it's not focused on disease, but on health, right? That um, you, you know, Mark, you talk about medicine as the science of health. You say, I don't really think in terms of diseases anymore. And, yeah. and Penny, to me, that's also there when you say wholeness to me meant a lot more than just whether or not the cancer cells were gone for good. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's about balance, right? So it's mm-hmm. like we, we now think you have a disease or you don't. But the truth is that disease arises from an, an imbalance in the system. So it's like, it's like a, I think of functional medicine as being like a soil farmer as opposed to, you know, an industrial agriculturist is putting chemicals on the plant. We're actually taking care of the soil mm-hmm. so disease can't actually occur or goes away as a side effect of creating health. So most of us who are doctors in this room probably never took a course in medical school called Creating Health 101. Like they just we didn't get that. We learned about all the diseases, but we didn't know what the science of health creation looked like. And essentially, that's what integrative medicine and functional medicine is about. But from a very sort of biomedical point of view, how do we do that? And mm-hmm. how, do, how, do, how does disease arise? And how do you change those conditions? And it's, it's really not that hard. I mean, there's really, like inflammation is a great example. We're now learning that inflammation is causing heart attacks and cancer and dementia and obesity and diabetes, not to mention all the allergic, I mean, the allergic and autoimmune and inflammatory conditions. I'm like, well, how do you deal with that? Do you take everybody aspirin? Do you give everybody steroids? Do you give everybody immune suppressants? Like, no, you figure out what's causing the inflammation. And then you understand what, what actually is driving it, which is mostly our diet, which are toxins, which are microbes, our gut flora, stress, allergens. Those are the things that are driving it. And then you, you deal with that. And you think, well, what are the ingredients for creating health? It's, so you, it's deal with, you deal with the system. You do right. It's with very the eco, You get the ecosystem yeah. functioning. You take out the flourishing. bad stuff. You put in the good stuff. It's like, what are the, <laughs> what are the ingredients for creating a healthy human? It's, it's, yeah. pretty, it's a pretty dumb short list. It's obvious, right? The right food, the right nutrients, the right balance of hormones, light, air, water. You know, connection, mm. sleep, movement, love, mm. community, meaning, purpose. Those are the ingredients for a healthy human. It's, it's not I rocket think, I think what's, what's important also is that we're really going back to what's basic to all the great ancient systems of healing. Now we have the modern science so that we can 
test more accurately for these imbalances. Mm -hmm. But understanding exactly what Mark is talking about, about the basic functions, this takes us back to Hippocratic medicine, Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic medicine. It's all there. And I, I think one of the things that's crucial in this transformation, though, is the transformation in consciousness. Mm-hmm. That without that, the danger that we face is of lapsing into the same kind of um, the same kind of mechanistic treatment, and that, that that's I mean that that's the part that I'm most yeah. interested in. Yeah. And and with that change in consciousness, then it becomes possible to use all the modalities to be open to all these ways. Yeah of working with people, but even more important, you become open to seeing the incredible power that each of us has for healing Mm -hmm. and to creating the context, whether it's a small group or a whole community, in which people can come together to heal themselves. And to me, that's the most fundamental and the most difficult shift to happen because it it threatens the kind of... The consciousness, uh, the shift in consciousness. Shift in consciousness Mm -hmm. is absolutely fundamental Mm -hmm. and it's most difficult for the medical establishment. It's easier for them to look, not that easy, but easier to look at functional medicine or acupuncture or, um, or using some herbs, but to really change the model to put the person and the not only patient-centered care, mm-hmm. but people having the capacity to understand and help themselves at the center because that threatens the role of the physician. It threatens yeah. the whole way that medicine is done, which essentially right. is that the physician or the institution does things to or for people, which, of course, you need if you're hit by a truck or you have an overwhelming infection. But for most of the problems that most of us have, it doesn't work very well. Right. And that's why we need to understand that. And we, we need that to be part of the education of all physicians, uh, part of the education of all of our children, so that that becomes a given. Yeah. It's, it's a huge tradition and a huge... Uh, you know, complex of structures to change, right? And like mm. what we're up against is also just the human condition that mm-hmm. that change is unfamiliar, and many of us resist it, and systems resist it. Yeah. Yes, I mean, that, I mean, that's Jen work is so critical because it, it sort of answers the second piece of the question, which is one is how do you change biology, right? The two most central questions for creating value based healthcare and creating you know, transformation of healthcare is how do you create healthy humans? Well, how do you mm-hmm. change biology? What's the science of that? And the second is how do you change behavior? How do you get people to actually do the things that are going to be necessary for self-care and transformation and awakening? And, and that's, that's really at the heart of Jim's work and is, is really the power of each other. It's the power of connection, community, peer pressure in a positive way. And, and that's, that's the insight that I had when I, when I helped develop the Daniel Plan, which is this faith-based wellness program with Rick Warren, where we, we use his small groups in his church of 30,000 to help transform the health of that community. And they were very sick, very overweight. The average weight was 210 for men and 170 for women. That was average. Mm-hmm. And yet they were able to change their culture, change their behavior. They did it together. They support each other. And there wasn't, it wasn't a top-down model. It was very d- democratic. It was a decentralized, democratized health system that allowed us to actually deploy the right information with peer support, accountability. And, and people lost a quarter million pounds in the first year, and they had all these health transformations. Uh, we ended up writing a book uh, called The Daniel Plan. I, I wanted to call it The Jewish Doctor's Guide for Christian Wellness. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, 
Yeah. Uh, they didn't go for that. But actually, actually, well, <laughs> we did. We did. We did win the Christian Book of the Year award, which is amazing to me. That probably the only Jewish guy who's ever won the Christian Book of the Year award. Uh, and it's. But the power of that is as not that it's faith based, but it's really that it's the power of community, and that's the model that is being used. That. It, with Jim, it, with great effectiveness in all sorts of environments, but really needs to be central to healthcare, and, and yeah. it's hard for people to get that. You're you're also touching. You're all touching on something that is, it's another really obvious kind of common sense human piece of this. But mm-hmm. it, it, it's it's you know it's, it's almost like it's it, which is just the human connection, and also that it's on the one hand it's about individuals taking charge of their health, yeah. but it's also about us being there for each other. Yeah. And I mean, Penny, you know, you, your, your father was a surgeon. And I mean, if you talk to you, you remember times when he, he made, I mean, he made house calls, right? I mean, so, I mean, I feel like there's a, there, there, there are these pieces, as you said, Jim, where we're, I mean, we're, we're on all these frontiers technologically. And then there are also old truths that we forgot that, that are getting reintegrated. Um, it seems to me that you know, that kind of human touch was baked in in another era of medicine. And also, I think they understood just the power of, of you know, caring. And I think we've forgotten that. They I didn't think. have anything else. And, and now that we're trying to be caring to each other in virtual virtual worlds, it, I don't think it's nearly as satisfying. And I think another piece I want to bring into the conversation mm-hmm. is the importance of the idea of well-being. Because yeah. health is a piece of well-being, but there's yeah. more than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in altruism, for example, the, the doing for others mm-hmm. has tremendous physical benefits. If, the, if that were, we should probably prescribe that for people. Yeah, it stimulates the same receptors in the brain as sugar, so. Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Pretty good. That's good. <laughs> um, and I was really intrigued that the George Institute, the Penny George Institute, has this transformative nurse training. Is that, I mean, that, I mean that's also just so, which is all about, again, like deepening that first level. Well, nurses never lost the appreciation for healing. And I think giving them license to go back and do what it is they most want to do, I think has been liberating. I think it's helped with turnover. I think um, it certainly helped the patients. Well, and how many of us have had an experience of, being in the hospital and yeah. the the care, the people you feel healed you, the doctors treated you. I mean, not to dismiss that, but the nurses brought you back to life. I have a short story about that. When I was in the hospital, um, it was for a different procedure before my breast cancer. And I, I woke up and there was a woman standing with a, with a mop in the doorway. And she said, I will be gone when, you know, when you leave. And I just wanted to, to tell you, I hope that you heal really well. And I, I, that stands out for me more than anything else in that entire hospital. It was like she, wow. oh, she, she really embodied that, that caring, and I felt it in a way that I, I didn't feel it from the physicians or anyone else. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be high on the yeah. medical food chain to make a difference. Penny, but w- one of the reasons that y- your program is so important is because so often nurses are pushed into bureaucratic roles and they've been yeah. pushed out of patient care and they're sitting in front of computers all the time. And it's it's really tragic. And as I go around to different hospitals and, and I see that, that we're going in the wrong direction in many ways. So all three of us, we're working with the largest hospital system in Indiana and creating what we hope will be the first wellness hospital. The Center for Mind-Body Medicine is with the 
Eskenazi, and were training 200 of their key leaders, clinical leaders, administrative leaders, and natural leaders. You know, the security guard everybody likes to hang out with, or the Starbucks lady who has lots of good stories that make people feel good. We're training them in mind-body medicine and nutrition, and they're going to work with all 4,000 employees and in turn with a couple hundred thousand patients using this model. But it, we see just how much, and this is a lovely hospital to begin with, but still there's so much frustration. Mm. And we, we see them drink up what we have to offer like they're sponges mm. and you know, losing lots of weight and starting their meetings, uh, department meetings with meditation. And then if things get tense and tight, everybody gets up and shakes and dances for a while <laughs> and they come back. I mean, it's really, and I think all of us, I mean, Mark at Cleveland Clinic and, and Penny here, mm-hmm. we, we see the importance of working with institutions and really creating a whole different atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So to, to make healing really what we're all about in these mm-hmm. institutions. Um, Jim, you, you have some um, practices of self-care that you talk about. And, you know, it's just like Penny, you said these things don't have to be high on the food chain. And like, these are, like you just mentioned, shaking and dancing, which I have to say makes me a little nervous. Um, <laughs> But the there's also soft we, we, belly breathing, which sounds like something you could do in private. <laughs> and um, would you just talk a little bit? And again, these are and you know, and it, these are simple, but you talk about them as profound. That there are all these ways that we can begin to integrate transformative practices into our very ordinary lives. Well, what we do at the Center for Mind-Body Medicine is we we draw on many, many different traditions, and we also draw very heavily. I was just talking with Jeff Dusek here about using some of his wonderful papers that he's done out here at Penny George, uh, uh, at Alina, Penny George Institute. Um, But we create the experience that people can come together, and we're doing a training here starting tomorrow morning. We have 270 people. We have 27 small groups. And we're working with many different kinds of meditation. Mm-hmm. No one kind is better than any other kind. We work with movement and dance and drawings and written exercises. And we make genograms, family trees, and talk about them. The world has so many beautiful traditions to help us you know, quiet our nervous system, mobilize our imagination, break up fixed patterns that in all the chronic illnesses that we're talking about, the body and mind all get, get mm-hmm. shut down. And to break those patterns up and to bring in what Hippocrates would have called the vis medicatrix naturae if he spoke Latin instead of Greek, but the, the healing force <laughs> of nature. if he spoke English, yeah. <laughs> that's that's yeah. what we're looking for. We're looking to help people to, you know, to create the opportunity for people to heal themselves and to create that environment. And that's what we do, whether we're working in the middle of a war or after a natural disaster or with a hospital system or with a corporation. It's all the same. What, what's the, the soft belly breathing is something you've taught people even in war zones. So tell, just teach us that. Teach you? Soft belly breathing. Soft belly breathing. Okay. So, great. Let's do it. This is the way we begin... Because the, the idea, I, I'm going to go through this a little length. How do we have a little no. time? No, we don't have time. Right. 
You have a couple so minutes. So I'm going to do it very briefly. <laughs> <laughs> this is the way we always begin. Because if you're tense and you're upset, you, you can't pay attention to yourself, and you certainly can't pay attention to anyone else. So let's say we're, let's say there is, we're in the middle of Gaza, and the civil war is going on. I mean, we happen to be there. And you've been there. Fatah and Hamas are fighting each other. People are being killed in the streets. Nevertheless, people are coming to our training. So what we do is we say, okay, we can't do anything about what's happening outside. So sit comfortably in your chair. And if you feel comfortable and safe enough, which you may or may not, but close your eyes, which will eliminate a lot of external distraction. And allow your breathing to deepen. And breathe in through your nose and out through your mouth with your belly soft and relaxed. And just experience that. Feel yourself relaxing with each exhalation, relaxing into the chair you're sitting in with your feet on the floor, your back against the back of the chair, your seat on the seat of the chair, And know that when your belly is soft and relaxed, it helps to activate the vagus nerve. Vagus means wandering in Latin. And this big nerve which comes up from the abdomen through the chest to the central nervous system in the brain quiets the body and the mind. It's the antidote to the fight-or-flight response, the antidote to the stress response, And one branch of the vagus nerve, which is activated when you breathe slowly and deeply with your belly soft, allows us to connect more easily, more harmoniously to other people. Activates centers in our cerebral cortex, which makes bonding easier. And notice how you exhale, how all the muscles in your body relax, And to encourage this process, you can say to yourself, soft, as you breathe in, and belly, if you breathe out. If thoughts come, let them come and let them go. Gently bring your mind back to soft belly. Okay, we'll have public radio listeners all over the country doing that. <laughs> well, that's that's the idea. This well, is what I what I really love about that is uh, the interwovenness of immediately accessible experience practice, and also it's a very sophisticated understanding of physiology, right? All of those things working together. I mean, Mark, you also talk about. Um, and of course, we talk a lot about food and eating well and nutrition. But I mean, you talk about using food as medicine, mm. right? And that's taking it a different. That's taking it, and and you're you're speaking that way in terms of what we are learning, yeah. right? Yeah, no, I mean, this is I think one of the biggest scientific discoveries of of uh, the last thirty years is that food isn't just energy; that it's actually information that actually provides instructions in a literally minute to minute, bite by bite basis to everything that's going on in your body. So literally you change your gene expression with every bite. 
you change your immune system, you change your gut flora, you change your hormones, you change all the protein functions in your body. And it literally has a direct effect on every functions, either for good or the bad, depending on what you're eating. So when you realize that, then it changes your relationship to food as not just a source of energy or pleasure, but actually transformational. And, and we don't in medicine know how to use food as medicine. We use drugs, we use surgery, but we have no insight that food is connected to health in most of the cases. And yet it's the most powerful drug. It works faster, better, and cheaper than any drug on the planet. I mean, I've had people change their diets in three days. They get off 50 units of insulin. There's no drug that can do that. People have autoimmune disease. They can be pain-free in weeks simply changing their diet. And, and that and get off very expensive medications. So we really can shift the way we think about treating disease to be primarily food-based. And I think the two big insights are really is that food is medicine and that the group is medicine, that the Mm -hmm. community is medicine. Mm -hmm. It's not just a delivery mechanism. And you put those two together, it's like rocket fuel for transforming health. Well, and also because uh, on the one hand, if food is a drug, you know, it's a drug that we consume all day long, right? I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's there. It's woven into our lives. On the other hand, changing behaviors around eating, yeah. um, we need so much help to do that. It's true. I mean, it's, our, it's the social determinants of what we eat, what's accessible mm-hmm. and available. It's our economic situation. It's our social community and cultural situation. It's our education. I mean, I, I, I was part of this movie. Um, it was sort of shocking to me, I, I, this, this sort of little episode that I'm going to share with you because I... You know, I, I think even though I, I believe that, you know, um, you know, most people, you know, want the best thing for themselves. I figure some people just know what to do, but they don't do it. And as part of this movie, Fed Up, and if you haven't seen it, it's about childhood obesity and sugar and food industry. And I went to this family in South Carolina and easily is one of the poorest communities, one of the worst food deserts in America. And there's a family of five lived in a trailer food stamps and disability, thousand bucks a month for food. And the mother was massively overweight. The father was diabetic and had a uh, renal dialysis, kidney failure. The son was practically diabetic, was 50 pounds overweight at 16. And they were desperate to do the right thing. They wanted to had die Mountain Dew because it was no calorie. They had low-fat salad dressing, which was full of sugar. They mm-hmm. had Cheez-Its because they were baked and not fried. They had Cool Whip because it said zero trans fat on the label, and which was just a, uh, you know, a, full of trans fats and only was able to say that because the FDA used a loophole. Yeah. I mean, the, the food company used a loophole from the FDA. So I said, well, rather than just kind of lecture them on what to do, because they really wanted to do the right thing, I said, well, why don't we just go shopping and, like, why don't we get some food and why don't we make dinner? And like they never cooked. There were two generations in that family that had no idea what to cook. They didn't know what was in their cupboards. They thought it was all healthy. They were trying to do the right thing. And I showed them what was in the labels. And I mean, you couldn't tell if it was a pop tart or a, a corn dog by the label if you just covered mm-hmm. over the label. It's all the same ingredients. Yeah. And and uh, and so we we started chopping vegetables. They didn't have cutting boards. They didn't have knives. We we made ch- turkey chili and roasted sweet potatoes and the kids come running from the other side of the trailer from their xboxes they never smell food cooking and you know mm-hmm. and we made salad and set with with like not iceberg lettuce with olive oil and vinegar dressing <laughs> yeah. and yeah it was amazing and they ate it and they loved it i'm like you can do this like you can do this and so they did it and and i gave them the guide from the environmental working group and i'm on the board it's, it's, it's you know how to eat good food on a tight budget and i uh, gave my cookbook i said like you can do this. And they did it. And they lost, the mother lost 100 pounds. The father lost 45, got a new kidney. The son lost 50. And, you know, he went, gained a bunch of it back working at Bojangles. But then he kind of, you know, there's nowhere to work down there for them. Then he lost it. But what it made me realize is that we, we actually have a solution to this problem. And it's, yeah. it's a lot of it has to do with education. Mm-hmm. A lot has to do with skill sets that we don't teach people. Mm-hmm. And health doesn't happen 
in the doctor's office. Health happens in your yeah. kitchen. It happens in the grocery store. It happens in your community. It happens in your workplace, in the school, in your faith-based communities. That's where health happens. And yeah. so once we realize that as healthcare systems, we have to break down the walls of our kind of institutions and realize that we have to get out and do that. And that's, that's what we're doing at Cleveland Clinic. We're rethinking how we not just what we do, but how we do it and the delivery models and has to include things like, you know, Jim and I were talking about the talking circles in the Nuka health system, which is in Alaska, that it's a first nation run health system where they're actually anybody who comes into the system has to join a talking circle, which is like one of Jim's small group to get connected and, and really begin to transform their behavior and their culture. And that's, that's the power of, Mm. I call it the love diet, you know, (laughs) I like that. Um, so in about <clears throat> five minutes, five, ten minutes, we're gonna, um, I'm going to open it up. So be thinking about what you'd like to say or ask. Um, I'd like to talk before we do that a little bit about spirituality, which it, it has been certainly a, a suspect word um, in medicine. I remember a couple of years ago I interviewed, um, I think he was like the editor of the Student Journal, Journal of American Medicine. And... Uh, he he was Muslim actually, but he he talked about the that there's a wall between church and state in America, and there's a wall between church and medicine. You know, which is you know church, mosque, synagogue. You know, with spiritual life. Um, and you know, I I think what he was getting at also is somehow in the late 20th century we kind of overextended. I mean, you know, church, separation of church and state should not be a separation between inner life and our outer presence in the world. But but somehow this 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 kind of separation entered a lot of our disciplines. Yeah. Um, so, you know, again, spirituality is a suspect thing to speak about in science or medicine, but it is also certainly in medicine is inescapable, right? So, Mm -hmm. so let's talk a little bit about how, um, about the words we can put around the integrity and the validity and the substance that this thing called spiritual life, which has as many, many interpretations as, as there are people, um, you know, how this is part of this new vision, this new consciousness about illness and healing. You know, Penny, you wrote, you wrote some really beautiful things about this, that, you know, spirit, serious illness or disability is as much a spiritual crisis as a physical one, that, and that healing is sometimes possible on a spiritual level, even if it is not always possible on a physical level. That's probably the best I could say about it, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Good job. Is it fair to ask you to say something about that? I mean, you spend an awful lot of time. In, I mean, I feel these things, and I have sort of opinions about them, but you're really deep in this, Krista. Would you, would you share something with us about what you, what you see? <laughs> Bill, what do I do with her? <laughs> Seriously. Um, <clears throat> but your readers would, your listeners well, would like to know. Well, well, I, I'll, I'll just say this. I mean, I'm really struck. I have been struck across the years when, you know, ten or fifteen years ago, if you started talking about real spirituality and healing, faith, faith and medicine, or spiritual and healing, people would talk about double-blind studies on whether prayers make a difference and whether somebody's healed, right? And you know, they went both those studies went both ways. But what's been interesting to me across the years is uh, I've noticed that physicians who are thoughtful about this, when they're talking about the role of religion or spirituality in their patients' lives, they're talking about really practical things like what is the web of care that surrounds them? Mm -hmm. Do they have a community? Um, Mm -hmm. And also, you know, their their capacity for self-care, for for healing themselves. Um, So I think it's much more, it's not woo-woo, 
Right. And it has to do with what what is what animates your life. What's the meaning mm-hmm. and purpose? For some people, faith is a deep part of it, but it can also work against it. There was an article in Time magazine, I think it was called A Week in the Life of a Hospital. I don't know if any of you remember it. And the very last page of it, it was Duke University I've been Hospital. To forget and that. It had a, huh? I've been trying to forget the hospital. Well, there was an article about the chaplain, and I, I finished reading that, and I thought, let this person never enter my room. Mm-hmm. And both my grandfathers are ministers, so I'm not anti religion, but it was something about that that felt um, coercive. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. When you think about it, though, historically, the doctors were shamans. They were medicine men. The monk, you know, monk, bodhisattva, doctor. I mean, yeah. this is actually what tradition we came out of was spiritual healing because that's pretty much all we had. <laughs> yeah. And now it's, you know, when you think about what happens in that space with a doctor and a patient or a healer and a patient, it's it's a very sacred moment. It is. And I mean, I was going to say, I feel like doctors are very, godlike figures a, and there is a sacred trust and we trust what doctors tell us, whether we should or not, because they have. Yeah. This. I mean, there's that aspect of it. From my point of view as a physician, when I'm in a room with someone and they open their heart and open their soul and tell their story, that's mm-hmm. a sacred moment. Like mm-hmm. that doesn't happen in real life. Right. That, I mean, mm-hmm. we are privileged to be able to be in that sacred space with someone where you can say anything and talk about anything and, and, and be in that little window where, where magic happens. And mm-hmm. doctors don't talk about it. They don't think about it. But if they let themselves feel that, it's powerful. I mean, there's a, there's a woman at, at Cleveland Clinic that's called the chief experience officer. And I said, you need to change your title. Call yourself the chief <laughs> compassion officer because that's yeah, right. really what it's about. It's about how do you get in those relationships that matter and mm-hmm. how do you cultivate that in medical students and healthcare institutions because that's yeah. where healing happens. Uh, what I would say, and what I do say, people will come to our trainings and they'll say, when are you going to talk about spirituality? I said, well, we're going to talk about it a little later, but the most important thing is how we treat each other. Mm-hmm. That's the way right. we manifest the spirit and the way, whether we're teaching or we're physicians with patients or we're just with other human beings anywhere. So that's number one thought. Um, Number two is that the work of healing is the work of transformation at its base, where you're not just treating symptoms. It is all about spiritual transformation, and that's, that's potentially what comes to people. N- another important aspect is that when uh, what I have seen, whether the illness manifests in a physical way or a psychological way, that the the sense of meaning and purpose and connection to something beyond ourselves is critical to healing. Mm-hmm. Almost always, and in and even in the most dire situations. And that can have many, many interpretations in, in any individual life. Exactly. And yeah. we just finished a, a, a wonderful work at Pine Ridge Reservation. Hmm. And we're working where there's 20 kids have killed themselves in the last nine months. And... Uh, Every day, one or two kids is going to the ER with an attempted suicide. And we saw how our work, and this is something that's been so deeply instructive to me, how our work could come together and we could work, the the elders would do traditional ceremonies and we would be teaching mind-body techniques and there was a kind of dance between us and it worked so beautifully. Mm. And so the other aspect of spirituality and healing is being able to go to other places, whether we're working with a Muslim or Christian or Jewish 
or voodoo healers as we work with in Haiti, but learning from and bringing those spiritual traditions together and having a little bit of humility about our own and being students of theirs and they doing likewise. So I, I think this work is all spiritual work mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. we're doing. I, I think what can be um, off-putting or concerning when people are outside this sphere, when they hear that, it kind of sounds like dabbling, you know? It can sound superficial. And it's also a lot of it is unfamiliar. Um, so and I think what, what you're talking about is honoring <coughs> all the places so many people come from and are planted in, right? Exactly. You know, I I don't... um, It it feels like the experience is so deep. As Mark said, it's it's a sacred experience. Mm -hmm. So we just happen to be people working in a number of different cultures, and it's... There are teachers. So it's not... You know, I think it goes as deeply as each human being is willing to let it go. Mm -hmm. I mean, love doesn't... Is not a you know, ideological thing, but it's the core of all religions, right? That's really what it's all about. What is, sorry? Love. Love, yeah. So, And I think, you know, the the other thing is people are afraid. They're afraid of the spiritual dimension. They're afraid of, also just afraid of looking at themselves. And that's why, I think that's why all of our work is more challenging than perhaps it should look like it should be. So it's easy to dismiss it, to say, oh, uh, you know, we don't have the randomized controlled trial or seven of them. If you have one or two, right. that's not enough. Or, um, you know, people will come and they'll say, well, I want to learn the techniques, but I really don't want to work on myself. Uh, so it's, this, is the, this is the process of education. This is why your work is very important in terms of bringing to a large audience an understanding that this is not something peripheral. This is part of everybody's experience. And I, yeah, and I think what you just said, um, you know, Spiritual life is that place where we work on ourselves. Yes. To, to demystify it. And that's the challenge. Mm-hmm. That's what makes people uneasy. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's, it's easier to have, a, you know, belief in a dogma, whether the dogma is religious dogma or scientific dogma, than to actually open oneself up to, as our tradition tells us, to looking for the truth. Hmm. Okay, so let's bring you into this. Um, let's see. I, there's Maya. I have two. Two of our producers are here tonight. Who's here? Maya and who else? Who else? Hannah, our intern, and Maya is our um, newest producer at On Being. She joined us from Australia, where she was a podcaster for many years. Because we live in a new world. So I have a question for each of you about the role of authenticity and healing, both for yourselves and who you work with, and how do you cultivate that authenticity, and what effect does that have in the healing practice? You want to start? You want to start? <laughs> sure. <laughs> I mean, it's, very, it's a very personal thing for me. I, I, I think it's a challenging thing to teach, which is actually why I leave that to Jim. Uh, but, but for me as a human, as a doctor, it's, uh, it's really the center of what I do is to fully show up in myself in that sacred encounter and allow them to do that and create the space for that and the safety for that. And to actually, I mean, the secret I don't really tell out loud very often is that I let myself fall in love with that human and who they are. You know, even if I'm never going to see them again or if I see them, build a relationship for a lifetime. I mean, it's really that 
creating that sacred space because that's where healing begins and that's where and i maybe can't fix them maybe i can't cure them but i can help heal them well i'm not a practitioner but um you you know when you see it it's kind of like intimacy and and um uh, what I wonder is how physicians in this world where you've got 15 minutes a patient and you're an oncologist and you're seeing a cancer patient and you learn one died and then you go on to the next one, you don't have any time to work it through, to do anything ceremonial or symbolic or anything. I, I, I don't know how physicians um, can, be, can be that way in the world we have now. Well, i got a lot of thoughts about this. First of all... Uh, I want to quote Oscar Wilde, who said, you'd better be yourself, everyone else is taken. (laughs) So so for me, it is preposterously uncomfortable to be inauthentic. So from a personal standpoint, I got to be who I am, and otherwise I'm cooked. And what's happening is so much of the chronic illness that's here in our society is because people are being inauthentic. So that's, I really, we need to, our job, we, what we're training people to do is to encourage them to be authentic. To, and what we're hoping that the people we train, the doctors, the nurses, the teachers, the shamans, the whoever we train, is that they'll help their patients to be the same. Now, the situation of these brief visits is killing the physicians, not just the patients. Yeah. Not good for the patients. It's horrible for the physicians. I wouldn't practice that way. I mean, I think that this, this is something, there's a whole other issue. Fear, this medical system is so shot through with fear, with fear of, uh, the fear of not getting the best residency, which, of course, I remember from medical school, the fear of doing something terrible to people, of malpractice insurance, yeah. the fear of being disapproved of. Um, doctors, one of the wonderful things about being a doctor, which doctors forget, is you can always make a living. That's one of the, I mean, I thought I wanted to help people and I wanted to make a a living. And people always need doctors and you don't have to practice in a way that makes you inauthentic. Doctors have to stand up and so do nurses and other health professionals. Easy, but it's easier for doctors because we got this fancy credential and say, no, I will not practice this way. And so it requires, again, it requires us to be authentic, but in order to save ourselves as well as to be helpful to our patients. And I think what you're talking about is the simplest possible thing and the thing that it takes all of us our whole life, right? I mean, it's, it's this shift in consciousness. Is, and if you're talking about human wholeness, it's, it's the adventure of a lifetime, right, getting there. Hi there. Um, I was just wondering, I would love to see my lifetime of functional medicine approach to eating disorders. I um, struggled with eating, an eating disorder for about 21 years. And um, once I addressed my nutrition and my, bi- my microbiome, within a week and a half, um, I, went, I, had a, I worked out four to six hours a day every day, a compulsion to exercise within a week and a half of changing my diet that compulsion was gone, and it never came back. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. I've gone back to clinics. I've, I've talked to doctors and nutritionists and saying, mm-hmm. you know, we really need to address this. I mean, what I ate in um, hospitals was mostly sugar, 
trans fats, um, yeah. just poor quality food, and then heavily yeah. medicated. Um, so I've got this intense passion for nutrition, but my dream is to see a functional medicine approach to eating disorders. And mm-hmm. the clinics are growing. I mean, mm-hmm. when I started out, there were a few people, and then when I would go back, I'd see the same people in treatment over and over, and then younger and older, and you know, both men and women. And it's becoming, it's just growing. And, you know, I know an approach that will help. And obviously functional medicine, I believe with all my heart, will help. I would just, I know, Dr. Hyman, you're working with the Cleveland Clinic, but I don't know if you've had much experience. Yeah. No, I've treated many, many patients over the years with functional medicine and eating disorders. And often the problem with mental illness is that we often attribute meaning to it that is the wrong meaning. You know, uh, there's a a wonderful book, uh, called Madness and Civilization, which talks about the different views of madness over the centuries, you know, whether it's a spiritual, you know, divine thing or whether it's, you know, now it's a biochemical imbalance. And the truth is that, you know, we attach all this meaning to mental illness when it actually may be something else, right? Sometimes Mm -hmm. it is a spiritual illness or a psychological problem, but often it's a physical problem that manifests in the brain because everything is connected. So when you change your diet, you change your gut, you see transformations. And I wrote a book about this called The Ultra Mind Solution, which is how to fix your brain by fixing your body. And, uh, and it works. Uh, and I think, you know, not everybody eating disorders is the same, but for many, it could be a powerful pathway. And there, there is actually some writing about this. There are some people who focused on this. It's not widely available, sadly, for anybody, for anything. And that's why we're building this program at Cleveland Clinic to start to sort of network um, with the other institutions and build programs in every area. I'm working now with building a prostate functional medicine program for prostate cancer, for brain health, for for women's health, for pediatrics, uh, cardiac care, endocrine care, autoimmune disease. You know, we're just sort of spiraling out throughout the institution. It's not sort of an add-on on the side. It's really central to what we're doing there. And that that is how systems change, right? Yeah. By these places of change, which may be marginal in the beginning, but that, that's I mean, how it works. The key with this Cleveland Clinic is that it, it didn't come from the bottom up. Integrated medicine that wouldn't have not really happened across the country without Penny, George, and Christy Mack, you know, funded innovative leaders who were yeah. trying to bring these institutions from the bottom up. And it's a struggle because the institutions didn't necessarily want it or they thought it was sort of a nice value add, but it was sort of marginal. What was different at Cleveland Clinic is that Toby Cosgrove said, this is the future. And we need to get in the game and let's do this. And I'm going to put in $50 million and I'm going to make this happen because, you know, even though we're going to lose money at the beginning, we're going to be ahead in the end. And we're going to be able to create true value-based care by dealing with the causes and dealing with a new system of medicine. And it's to his credit, you know, he's like the Wayne Gretzky of healthcare. He goes where the puck is going to be, not where the puck is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think that's, that's what healthcare leaders need to be thinking about because uh, if we stay stuck in the old way of doing things, both the delivery model and the content, we're just going to be rearranging the deck chairs in the Titanic. And as Bill said, it's necessary but not sufficient to do all the things that are happening, like reduce errors, better care coordination, better health IT, you know, reducing waste, um, improving efficiencies, all that's necessary, but it's not going to solve the real problem is how do you get people better using the model we have? We can't. It just doesn't work. Penny, you want to say something? I just wanted to say thank you to to Penny Wheeler for having believed in the George Institute since it was the very beginning, and and we're looking for ways to be able to do more of this. And so the Penny George Institute really is central to all of Alana. It isn't out in the fringes somewhere. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to to acknowledge that Mm -hmm. because that takes courage. Yeah. 
Thank you all. I, I feel like I was fortunate 12 years ago when I was in school to see a Sun Tzu Miao quote, and he's a founding father of Chinese medicine, and it said, a superior physician doesn't just treat disease, but teaches society and helps form the intentions of humanity. And so I use that as a benchmark. And at first it was more about teaching skills like how to breathe and how to eat. But the longer I do it, the more I realize it's really about the intention. And so I was wondering if each one of you could say what your one of your biggest hopes for changing the intentions of the people that you work with and for us as practitioners would be. I'm sorry, didn't I, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm a victim of uh, sort of an iatrogenic uh, illness. When I was a kid, my father was so eager to treat my ear infections that he treated it with a hot new antibiotic called streptomycin. And it was great for the ear infection. Unfortunately, it, it destroyed my eighth nerve. Oh, so gosh. I started losing my hearing. So I, I didn't, that's a, by way of saying, excusing, please excuse me, I didn't hear the whole question. The, the question was about the importance of intention. Um, and you're, you're speaking also as a practitioner, right? And, and um, how do you, how would you talk about what your core intention or part your... As a, pract- as a practitioner? Yes, yes. My... my, my my core intention is to be there with another human being. So that's why meditation is central. You practice Chinese medicine? So Chinese medicine, anciently, and perhaps still in the best schools, meditation is central. You know, some kind of meditation, moving meditation, qigong, tai chi, sitting meditation. And everything is done in a meditative way. So my intention is to be present with myself and present with the other person, and then use whatever the tools are that I have at my disposal. I practice Chinese medicine. I use those tools. I know Western medicine. I use those tools. I'm a psychiatrist. But to be in that presence, it comes to me, and I would hope it comes to you and all of you who practice, what to do. And it's beyond, it's not, algorithms are a bit nutty as far as I'm concerned. Because they're, you know, again, it's trying to, to, you know, to codify something. And the human being is changing every moment. So we need to be with that human being and respond. And that's really my, my only intention, is I'm, I'm a here, I'm a physician, I'm a healer. I want to respond to that person. I want to use whatever tools I have in the most respectful way. And ultimately, I want to give, and even very early on, I want to give that person the tools to heal herself. So that's my intention as I come to people. Hmm. I went to a conference, and um, it was a strategic planning conference for NCAM, National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine. Um, and there was a reception before, and there was a physician from a, a large health system in Minnesota, very well regarded. And he was saying, I'm, I'm really excited about finding the dose response for massage. And I thought uh-huh. to myself, it's a lot. Is, for me, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a, it's a very high dose. <laughs> I'd rather have 15 minutes with somebody that I know cares than an hour and a half with somebody who doesn't. And that yeah. is about intention. And you can feel it. You can feel that. Mm. Mm. So I was, uh, I was at a restaurant in Cleveland that owned by this guy who hires ex-cons to come and uh, learn how to live a life after they get out of prison. And uh, I was sitting there, I had my Cleveland Clinic phone on the table, and he's like, are, are you a Cleveland Clinic? I'm like, yeah. He says, are you a doctor? I'm like, yeah. He says, what kind of doctor? Are you a heart surgeon? And I'm like, 
mm, thought mm-hmm. for a minute. I'm like, yeah, I open hearts. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that sort, of, that sort of says it, you know. You know what? You should have been in advertising if you had not <laughs> medicine. <laughs> he is. He's advertising for us. <laughs> First, I want to thank you, Penny and Bill, for your initiatives. Um, I think it's really transformative, especially the Catalyst. I wish Suzanne was here uh, to honor her, too. But um, Lois Quam said to me that research shows that it takes, on average, of 20 years for the medical community to change after the evidence, evidence exists. I'm curious where you all think we're at. It may be an unanswerable question, but... Well, it's We're better when, than when Semmelweis discovered that, that, child, that not washing hands killed mothers. It took 70 years then, so we've made progress. But you guys answer that, because I don't know. Uh, you know, I think it's shifting faster because of the pace of information transfer. And I think, uh, you know, the decentralization, democratization of health information has really, you know, put healthcare in a different space, right? Because when patients can go on Dr. Google and find all kinds of stuff that the doctor may not even know and try things that, you know, work that aren't in the wheelhouse of conventional medicine, I mean, then things start to shift. Um, Yeah, you you know, Max Planck famously said, the great physicist said, science advances funeral by funeral. Right. It may sound a little grim. <laughs> but there's some truth to it. The other thing is that it changes experience, changes people, and I think you know we we know this. If if something happens to someone else's patient or to someone else, it's an anecdote. If it happens to you, it's an n of one scientific study. So I, I think it's really. I mean, you're, one of the questions that Krista asked us earlier is about our own turning points. Part of a major factor for all of us is our personal experience. And I think that we can speed up this process. Yes, Mr. Google, definitely helpful. But we can speed up this process by, in, by creating the opportunity for all of us to have the personal experience, whether and beginning with the school children, beginning with all the health professionals, and then spreading it out and sharing it. Yeah, I mean, I mean Toby Cosgrove had the entire executive suite do my 10-day detox diet. So they had the experience of food as medicine. And the transformation was amazing. And then all of a sudden, everybody bought in because they go, oh, my God, my joint pain went away. My migraines went away. My digestion's better. I lost 20 pounds. Like, you know, people get it. And, you know, you don't have to talk about it. Incidentally, I'm just thinking that we had a uh, 25 years ago, uh, Congressman Lane Evans, who some of you may have known, was on my board, and, and we had a meeting in, uh, in the House of Representatives. And a bunch of congressmen came, but only one senator came, and it was Tom Harkin. And I did a mindful eating meditation. And that was one of the things that, I mean, that, that sort of got encouraged Tom to move ahead with creating the Office of Alternative Medicine. He had experiences with Berkeley Bedell. Then he came and he had this experience. And it was, you know, it was profound, something so simple. Uh, he had an experience with Berkeley, which had to do with uh, using uh, bee pollen, I think was using bee pollen for allergies. And it, it worked. So this is really important. We have to be able to have these experiences ourselves and then share them with other people. And it can produce major changes. And those experiences, plus Tom's general um, energy and cussedness at times, he, was, he went up against the whole NIH establishment. 
and he created the Office of Alternative Medicine, which became the National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine, and has been a major force now, a budget of $120, $130 million a year. Mm-hmm. So we have to make sure this is not just about information. This is very much about experience. I, I think another thing, though, that plays in here is the is the importance of people talking it up, people supporting it philanthropically. Um, philanthropy is the is the engine of transformation in, in society. There are so many um, incentives for the system to stay the way it is, and and I think that when people have these experiences and talk openly about what what their experience has been, I think physician practice is changed as much by their patients as by the research. But I also want to give a nod to the importance of research because to the degree that integrative health and medicine can can demonstrate that the, that we can solve the triple aim question of better outcomes, better better patient satisfaction, and um, lower whatever costs. the third one Lower costs. <laughs> lower costs, mm-hmm. thank you. Yes, lower costs. How about that? <laughs> um, that? That will help as That's well. That's the one everybody cares about. Yeah. <laughs> That's the one we know how to talk about. I I would agree. Research is absolutely necessary, and it is not sufficient. Uh It is amazing. Selective inattention is an amazing thing. (laughs) Articles can be published right in the best journals, the best mainstream journals, and people don't see them. The first article on using deep breathing prior to surgery was published in 1964 in the New England Journal of Medicine and showing extremely good results. You know, less need for post-operative medication, faster time, uh, you know, getting out of the recovery room faster, fewer complications. 1964. And still, it's not, and now, since then, there have been many articles published, it is still not standard procedure. And I, I don't know of any hospital, maybe, maybe, at, uh, no, yeah. at Abbott there, Northwestern, it should be standard procedure in every hospital in the country. Yeah. The we, research is there. It's true. We, there, we there's an, plenty of evidence. We have another one, too. 200, I read in Medscape, um, 200,000 people have died from opiate over, overdoses. So we have a serious problem with these, these pain medications. Um, a study at Abbott Northwestern Hospital of 400 patients where acupuncture was made available, um, 75%, I think, of the practitioners referred for it for pain. Of those who were referred, 90% of them um, accepted acupuncture, and it was as, as effective as any of the pain medications, including the opioids. Now, why on earth would we not be doing this? Well, there's not enough funds. You know, that that's the kind right. of slowness that I, in my in my mind is kind of unconscionable because mm-hmm. meanwhile we're continuing to give the opioids right. and people are continuing to become addicted or to and, and Penny, you're, you're, you're right that, that everybody has to speak up. People, all of us in this room have to tell our doctors what's what. I mean, they really need to hear it. from. And that, I've seen doctors who have changed because patients whom I and others have seen have gone back to their oncologists and gone back to other, other physicians and said, look, I'm doing this. It's making a difference. And when they hear it often enough from their patients, it begins to register. So it's really, yeah. this is a massive project, this transformation. And and all of us need to be engaged in it, not just those of us who are sitting sitting up here. Let's um, 
Let's collect a few questions, comments, and I believe that a question, putting a good question into the world is a powerful thing. So even if we don't, if it doesn't get answered or, you know, it's out there. Um, so let's just collect a few, and then I know Bill wanted to, and you, Bill has some microphones. No, you go ahead, and you can say something, and then. Well, I thought you had a beautiful discussion on spirituality, and what's the role of spirituality and healing in this? In the past two weeks, I've been with two friends who are in two of the leading medical centers in the world, both near death may could recover. If they do, they'll have long-term chronic diseases. And the question they're asking, you know, what's the purpose for my living? And I want to ask you how you saw this. Because I remember, Penny, the first thing you asked is, does my life matter? And does it have a purpose? I want to know what's your view of this as having a part of the healing process. Well, let's face it, people with chronic diseases who are never going to be fully cured uh, have to work really hard at it. Mm-hmm. And medicine, Western medicine has no answers to go beyond that. They aren't going to fully cure. What is the role of having that s- essential purpose for living? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's critical. So, it's... Hang, yeah. Well, you can, all right, you can say something. I'm trying to be in control here. <laughs> all right, go on. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I think it's it's essential. It's one of the ingredients for health is purpose and meaning. And uh, life doesn't make sense without it. Uh, and it just reminded me of a story of this woman I saw who I saw and she had really kind of crippling rheumatoid arthritis. And I knew if she changed her diet and got healthy, she would she could fix it. And she was in her, like, I think mid-50s or late-50s, and she had these two young kids who were from her daughter or son who was a drug addict, and she kind of got the kids. And they're, like, five, and they're cute, and they're amazing, and she told me all about them, but she's really not doing very well. And, you know, she really wasn't listening to me. And I, and I literally walked out of the room as I was walking out the room I turned around and I said don't F it up you know like you've got these kids don't F it up and she came back like yesterday and I saw her in clinic and she was like completely transformed <laughs> she did everything her arthritis was all better and it was like because I, I connected with what mattered to her you know what mattered to her was being able to parent those little kids and be there for them and like every patient has that little thing and that's part of the like the surgical, the spiritual surgery that you have to do to find out what is that for that person yeah. and, mm-hmm. and find out that meaning. Um, there was a book by Jean Shinoda Boland called Close to the Bone, Life-Threatening Illness and the Search for Meaning that I found just enormously helpful. But that was um, probably goes back to early childhood things, and I think that is also triggered a lot when you have life-threatening illnesses. Mm-hmm. What are your deepest assumptions about life? Mm-hmm. And... Um, that's the another reason why it's important to hear the story, and it doesn't have to be, and probably shouldn't, in some times, be the physician. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why team-centered care like this, mm-hmm. because it's everybody's got different preferences, and I might find um, somebody appealing to me to, to to hear my story. And it doesn't have to be a, a no. you know a long-term kind of long relationship to hear the story. But well, that's why the, the circles and the groups, because you don't have to be yeah. anything; you can just be another human, and that's the beauty of it. You don't need some great figure to hold that space for you. Yeah. I was at Rachel, Rachel Remen, who you first introduced me to all those years ago. I said, you know, every, every disease, you know, every, no cancer, no heart disease, no diabetes is the same because it all has a story attached and you're <coughs> connecting the, the purpose is in the story, the thing that's going to keep people yeah. living. I, mm-hmm. I, I would say that another somewhat different way to look at it is it, it first of all if we're talking about what we can do as physicians as helpers to other people it's to be 
in our own way, trying to find the meaning and purpose in our lives, wanting to be and hopefully being connected with something beyond ourselves that is also within. That's how we communicate it to others, by our being. One of our faculty in Gaza uh, said to me, there's a saying in the Quran that when you do not have hope, you have to find it in the face of another. And he said to me, and we found it in your face, my face, and face of your team, and now we are able to bring it to the people of Gaza. So it's as you're working, as you're looking for, as you recognize the possibility that there is hope of finding this connection, that's the first step. Then you communicate that to others, and then very simple techniques. I mean, the simple techniques we use, guided imagery. Is such a beautiful way of connecting with what, whatever you want to call it, your inner wisdom, the great spirit, your intuition, the right brain. It doesn't make any difference how you conceptualize it. But I have seen, not once or twice, but thousands of times, people being able to answer this question themselves. If you simply create a safe place and give them some simple tools so they can begin to explore it. And it will happen. And they have to, often we have to get out of our, we talked about shaking and dancing. We do techniques like shaking and dancing so people get out of that rational mind that says, oh, no, I, I, I can't figure it out. I can't. Okay, let's open things up. Let's open it up to other <laughs> possibilities. And this is, this is the ancient shamanic practice of opening people up to a wisdom greater than you know, greater than their ordinary rational mind. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to invite you to demonstrate that for us. <laughs> um, well, you can come over to the hotel. Okay, yeah, all right, all right. <laughs> oh, our, our program. <laughs> um, so let's, I actually do want to do this. We're going to just go a few minutes over, but let's have a, just a few, uh, maybe three, a quest, throw a question into the room, a story into the room, and then we're going to come back up here and finish up. I'm sorry. I'm sorry we can't get to it. Hello? Can you hear me? Hi. I have a, a question about, um, it's in mental health. And um, you talk about the importance of connection and community and healing. And um, when young people have uh, experience of major mental illness, it happens, well, usually mental illness happens in the ages between 17 and 30. It's really a young person's disease, but we're seeing the ramifications of it in our communities with people on the streets and in our prisons and, and also, you know, everywhere. But there's so much not being talked publicly about mental illness. And how do you create community um, and connection for this important group of people who um, need it, I think, in order to heal? Okay, so let's, that's wonderful. Let's just two more. Um, there's one right there. Yeah. Um, I have a story similar to a couple of you. I had migraines for the longest time. I tried a million different ways to fix it and got nothing. Finally, through the blessings of the Internet and your work and other things, I found somebody that answered the why. And now I have this internal drive to share this with it. I mean, like, an entire world has opened up where food makes a difference. All these things make a difference. And it's like this blurry road ahead. I know that I need to share it. I know I need to do something. And it seems like... You all at one point in your life were at the beginning of the blurry road, and now you're here. (laughs) It's still blurry. No, it's not. It's amazing because you're here. You're making these impacts on people's lives. And what, I guess, advice do you have for me? But for everybody here that really cares about all this and is 
working toward making as big of an impact as possible. Okay. Let's say one more. <clears throat> um, there's one up here. Let's see. Let me see. Okay. Well, actually, I had a question uh, along those lines a little bit. Um, you know, Dr. Hammond, uh, you, you appear to be pretty clear about what the nutrition formula is for a certain state, or, you know, there seems to be a science in the way this is done. How established is the science, and how consistently uh, accepted is it amongst your colleagues, amongst the, in the medical community? And um, if not, why not? <laughs> I'd love to answer that question. You would. You well, would. I, 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 we're not answering questions. But I, 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 <laughs> All right, you can answer the question. <laughs> I mean, the, the evidence for how food affects biology is, is very well established. I think the, the, the forces that drive our food policy and our food recommendations are, are highly corrupt, and I think the education that doctors have is next to nothing, if not nothing. So there's this huge gap. And, and most physicians don't understand that food actually can play a role in the therapeutic process. They don't understand how it works. They don't understand why. They don't know anything about it. And so it's sort of this, this big vacuum in healthcare right now. But the, the evidence is very strong. I mean, I was, I was sitting with the... Um, the chairman of, of cardiology at Cleveland Clinic, which is the number one heart hospital, a couple of days ago, and I'm like, so I'm coming out with a new book. It's on fat. And I was sort of nervous because I'm like, I'm going to have to go up against this whole concept that fat causes heart disease, which I think is sort of well-proven that it doesn't. And, and uh, you know, I said, I just want to give you a heads up and, you know, let you know it's coming. And, <laughs> and I'm like, I was a little nervous. And he's like, no, you know, I think we got the whole story on fat wrong. He says, I even think we got the stir on saturated fat wrong. I said, we've been eating so much sugar, and that's, since we're eating low fat, we've got all this problem. And, and I'm, you know, I'm writing an editorial for a major medical journal talking about this. I'm like, wow. You know, like it just, uh, so I think it's starting to shift. I think it's starting to shift, but it's, it's really tough to, to sort of bridge that gap. And I think unless doctors actually see this in a real way, for diseases like that that are proven and it's tough we're working at cleveland clinic and uh, you know we're trying to show how we can get people off insulin that's our study we want to get people off insulin which you know when conventional endocrinology it's a one-way street you start on diabetes medications it just progresses you get on insulin and you manage your sugars you manage diabetes and i'm like no you can get rid of it and we do and quickly um and there's evidence that that's true but they're concerned about even being part of the study because they think it's a waste of time because they know it's not going to work. And I'm like, wow, that's like really not very scientific. <laughs> you know? so, but it's, you know, there are challenges to getting it pushed through, but I think it'll, it'll happen. How much of this so, is Well, it's not really a gap in knowledge. I don't think it is a gap in knowledge. I think it's really, you know, a, a collusion of events that happened around, uh, you know, you know, food policy, ag policy, um, you know, and and uh, and 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 our 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 food system, and and the food system is really driving most of the chronic disease. You know, food is causing most of the chronic illness that we see, and it's it's unfortunate that that's not part of the conversation at any level, like not in government, not in healthcare. I mean, I mean, uh, there was a there was a company that asked Cleveland Clinic whether they would be willing to petition the FDA to make their food policy and their guidelines and their nutrition labeling match the science. And, 
and Toby Cosgrove asked me what I thought, and then there was a head of government relations that said, oh, no, we should get involved. I'm like, hell, yes, we should get involved because healthcare institutions and doctors need to take a stand about what we should be eating because that's the stuff that's actually causing disease. And so there's often this sort of disconnect between you know, health care and food policy and health policy. It's just, it's kind of a mess. There's also an issue in, in the medical profession. There was an article, I think it was in the Annals of Internal Medicine, maybe 15, 20 years ago. And it talked about, it, would, it sort of raised the question, why don't doctors know more about nutrition? And the reason, fundamental reason, is that information about nutrition is not included in medical education, and it goes out to people around the doctors and not through them. So so doctors don't control that information. It's not their field of expertise. Mm-hmm. And so many of them have just, you know, yeah. up, up to, uh, have totally ignored nutrition. So that's the other yeah. element. In yeah, I mean, to the, food the most of the disease we have is caused by food, can be cured by food, and doctors know nothing about food. And it's just, and didn't, it's didn't like, have, it's didn't stunning. Didn't Hippocrates say, let your food be your medicine? Wasn't that Hippocrates? Yeah. Yes, and Who we have that? a course, incidentally, Hippocrates. called Food as Medicine. Medicine, and we yeah. invite all of you to come to our training. <laughs> all right, so because th- this is everybody <laughs> needs to know about food as medicine, yeah. and it is Hippocrates. So it's fundamental, so but it's no, not no. just Hippocrates. <laughs> <laughs> you got to every tradition you, knows to that. <laughs> We've forgotten it. <laughs> so we're we're talking about a shift in consciousness and an evolutionary shift, and the. Issues and the clusters of issues are correspondingly complex. Um, I um, I think I what I hear you all saying. I mean, I feel like we could keep we could stay in here for three hours, and um, and I think what we're all called to do. I hear you all saying is have those conversations. There there are all these conversations wanting to happen here, and have those with each other and mm-hmm. with your physicians. Um, and maybe the George Institute will invite us all back. Um, I want to um, invite you, if there's something you want to reflect on that just got raised, but I just want to um, close, and I'm not actually sure how to, how to um, form this question, but just to say, you know, as much as we're talking about he- health and healing as the point of medicine, um, there's also an aspect of this realization that illness that illness is not only inevitable but there's that illness also is a gift right that illness somehow is part of life's wholeness and life's trajectory um and that it is transformative and you know mark you've said illness tells us things right where we mean illness is our teacher and penny your whole life's course was changed by illness and um you know, Jim, you've talked about illness is an opportunity for personal growth and transformation. So it seems to me that this is also a truth to name as part of this shift in consciousness. You know, as you say, you know, traditional medicine, you know, death was failure. It was defeat and illness was a problem. So, I, I, again, I don't know what the question is, but I wonder if you would reflect a little bit on that as part of this transformation. And, and also, again, if there's anything else you want to say based on what arose here. So, I don't know, Jim, would you like to start? I'm speechless. <laughs> <laughs> no, you, I mean, you, you said it so beautifully. We were just, in working with the Lakota elders, they understand exactly what we're saying here. They say, in order to heal others, and this is a deep aspect of shamanic 
healing all over the world, you have to have been through the fire yourself. Otherwise, you cannot know what it's like. You cannot know how to help others with the respect and the deep personal knowledge that's necessary for that. So I would just sort of, and I think it's great that you're ending with this because I I think it's really so important going forward is this is not our enemy. Illness is not our enemy. Death is not our enemy. This is part of life and all of life is our great teacher if we're open to it. And the more we are open to it, the more we can be open to helping other people also open themselves. Hmm. I would just add to that the idea of what is the invitation in this illness, which you have to be careful because it's not, it's not to, to, to imply what did you do to cause your illness. But I think there is an invitation in any illness, and, and part of it is recognizing that life is short. This is not a dress rehearsal, and, and what is it for you? And for me, it led to this. I didn't intend this. This was not a logical, con- you know, conscious thing, but it was like it unfolded as I sort of became the agent of my own health. And um, I, I would wish that for everyone who has any kind of illness, even if it's not life-threatening, is to see what the invitation is to a fuller life um, and greater well-being. Hmm. Yeah, I, I echo what Jim and, and Penny said, but you know what sort of came up in my, in my feeling, my body was the sense that, um, you know, a lot of illness today and, and you know, illness has changed over the millennia, but a lot of illness today is the result of social, political, and economic drivers that um, are so unnecessary mm-hmm. and so solvable. Like, we can't end climate change tomorrow, but we could end chronic illness, most of chronic illness. Mm-hmm. We know how to do it. It's mm-hmm. not difficult. And yet, um, you know, we we don't address the problems in that way. We're dealing with, you know the downstream effects instead of the causes. And it's the thing that really, you know, keeps me up and nice. How do we, how do we as a society begin to grapple with that? And the only way I can come up with is, is, is really to sort of, to begin to create these healing circles, these, these talking circles, these small groups, the things that Jim does where we, we rebuild community and connection and meaning and love in communities where people can begin to transform and own their lives and own their communities and transform the food system and transform their behaviors and transform the schools. Like it has to happen, but it can happen not in, in a big kind of global way. It has to happen very locally and essentially as local as your own kitchen, as local as your, I mean, if you own a company, if you have a workplace, if you're part of a school, it can be a very small space that it starts in, but it really, it ripples out and it's really transformational. And everybody in this room has that capacity to create that change in their own life, in their own body and, and in their community. And that's where it really has to start. So in a moment of the transformation of medicine, that invitation that Penny talked about, there's the personal invitation to ask, or the, there's the there's the question of what what is this in, inviting me to know and learn and do, and but it, there's also a civic life component to that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I think a lot in my work about uh, how social change happens, and um, um, Jim, you were just saying you you heard the interview I did last week with Mary Catherine Bateson and. Talked about her mother was Margaret Mead. She's an anthropologist, but Margaret Mead talked about evolutionary clusters. Um, some other language I like is uh, John Paul Lederach, who's a global mediator, and he talks about um, you know we need critical mass change entails critical mass, but there's also critical yeast. 
which is really a corollary to Margaret Mead's idea. You know, critical mass is these big eruptions, often overturning something, but critical yeast, evolutionary clusters, um, is uh, small groups of unlikely people in a quality of relationship. And, and I feel like that's what is evident here. And, is it, and I think you're all saying everybody in this room can be part of this, you know, create their evolutionary cluster. And, you know, Penny, I just want to say on a personal note, you and I have had conversations across the years, and, and you're so impatient for this change to happen. <laughs> <laughs> and you're often so frustrated because it's inadequate. And as you said, you know, it's amazing what could happen tomorrow if everyone understood. Um, but I, I'm so aware, you know, yes, there's so much more work to do, but how far this discussion has come. You know, mm-hmm. the sophistication of this discussion, the sophistication of the questions and the experiences that people articulate in this room, mm-hmm. the, the, all the pilot projects that you all are talking about that's happening here at the George Institute. Um, it is good every once in a while to step back and, you know, celebrate how much is moving. And yeah. I'm really aware of it tonight, and I'm very grateful for this invitation and for all of you. And, um, so, and thank you so much for a wonderful discussion. Thank you. Thank you.